0: Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod50 for 50% off. Hello
1: and welcome to This is Critical. I'm Virginia Heffernan. On This is Critical, we question all of the cultural creeds we take for granted, like that abortion has anything to do with a plump sleeping 10-month-old baby when it really has to do with a uterine lining that should not bother any legal theorist when it's washed out and when it's not against the will of a woman it can ruin too many lives to count forced pregnancies tax every single person involved not least the men who, with Roe overturned, can be forced into fatherhood and child support just because a uterine cleansing is somehow illegal under the law of what's fast becoming a repressive regime that puts the strange privileges of the so-called unborn uterine linings before the rights of born people. Today we're talking about another expression of misogyny, Gamergate. But before you say that thing is too confusing and it's all behind us, my guest, Brianna Wu, is going to explain what Gamergate was and why it's not over yet. Wu, who was the target of the Gamergate violent trolling and online attacks, is also going to connect that experience to the potential demise of Twitter at the hands of its soon to be overlord, Elon Musk. Brianna is an ace software engineer and video game designer who runs her own shop, Giant Space Cat, in Boston. And she is also the executive director of the Rebellion Pack, a progressive hybrid pack also based in Massachusetts. Now, just to get some terms straight in what can be a jargon thicket, the Dread Gamergate describes a 2014 explosion of harassment of women in gaming. It carried the bitter tone of that he-man, woman-hater club who are now known as incels for what they see as their enforced celibacy and rejection by women who should be fawning over them. The chief targets of the attacks were the game developer, Zoe Quinn, the feminist critic, Anita Sarkeesian, and my guest, Brianna Wu. All of these women had been critical of sexism and misogyny in the gaming world, And then, as if to prove their point, they got rape and death threats for suggesting that women were underrepresented among game designers and in the games themselves. Gamergate led to Brianna Wu, among others, consulting at Twitter to try to prevent this nightmare from ever happening again. But her group's work, as you will see, was quickly undone and is now in real danger from Musk, who claims he's gunning for free speech, but under that banner, may drop the guardrails and very well might amplify the same weird incels that brought us Gamergate. I'm looking forward to diving into this with Brianna Wu. Your gaming career is not at all reducible to Gamergate. But right. Gamergate brought up some of the issues and some of the um, ambitions in your gaming history. So maybe you can tell tell this from your point of view. Because I am sick of stories that tell everyone that it sucks to be a woman on the internet. Right. So I don't want to go to oh, we can't stand getting all these threats and it's the worst thing in the world. It is a tiny fraction and I get harassed a lot. You get harassed a ton. It is a fraction of my life online as it is for you. So tell us about your career in gaming with a sidebar. Of Gamergate.
2: I first became interested in uh, basically uh, 3D graphics engineering uh, way back in the PlayStation 1 era. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents, uh, who interestingly are like these far-right uh, religious conservatives in Mississippi, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they helped fund any interest I ever had in anything, and their approach was always, look, we'll give you the tools to learn what you want to learn. So, they got me uh, what was called the PlayStation One Net Eurose system, and I started learning kind of these primitive graphics that you could do on there and kind of indie development. Um, fast forward 10 years uh, when my husband was laid off in the middle of the uh, economy cratering mm-hmm. uh, in 2008. And when we moved to Boston, I was like, well, I'm finally going to chase this dream and found a uh, game studio. Mm-hmm. Uh I had been frustrated since literally 1985 when my parents got me the NES Uh at the lack of women in video games. It just drove me absolutely crazy. You mean playable characters, like in the games? Yes. Yes. If you go back and look at the NES, the number of playable women, you can count on two hands, basically, for the entire NES library. So. By 2008, things had really not changed. Uh, So I saw with the iPhone coming out and Unreal being moved to it that there was a real possibility to tell stories. And I wanted to just tell games where women got to be the hero. So uh, I hired a bunch of women and we produced some, uh, I think, technically astonishing games. Do you know the actor
1: Martha Plimpton? Um, Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, but I heard her give an interview um, on this Rosanna Arquette project about women in acting and sh- in film. And she said, um, I don't want more strong women. Right. I want women characters. Right. Right? You want all these shades of gray and a full subjectivity. You don't just want them to be like admirable and quote, kick ass. And what I love about your characters is they have such emotional a- a range and cognitive range.
2: Yeah, uh, I'm really proud of this for Revolution 60. So, if you look at the characters for our game uh, that we shipped in uh, 2014, you know, yeah, you have your tough commando, like warrior character, but you've also got this really cynical uh, leader that's kind of just burnt out on every single level. You've got someone who's just psychologically broken and is kind of uh, a little manic because of it. You know, you've got this circumstance sarcastic scientist. And what I'm really proud of with that is you don't have one woman representing all women in our game. It's this range of personalities and emotions. Those are the kinds of women I want to see in games. And I just think, I think that when men are writing them, all respect to them, I just think we tend to come down to shallow stereotypes. I don't think there's that emotional depth there.
1: And as you say, you know, the suggestion that getting more women in gaming, more playable female characters who are not just the object of perception and lust from male characters is not asking a lot. I mean, there were something like, what, 3% of women uh, making games. It's always hard to register when you got into the field and you were basically like, I heard you make some joke about, you know, People, they're falling on their fainting couches at the idea of moving from 3% to 9% of women in gaming, right? That's
2: correct. Women really don't make it up to senior levels and senior uh, decision-making levels of their career at the same way men do. And I think that's responsible, not just for the representation you see on screen, but for the fact that women leave at a rate of three times that of what men do in this field. Uh, You know, particularly uh, parents who are women. And, uh tend to hmm. leave at an astonishing rate. So I think it's a real structural issue.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, well, we're going to try to remedy this in our small way today. <laughs> um, tell us just in however many sentences you feel like about so-called
2: Gamergate. Sure. My experience with Gamergate was um, early on in 2014, 4chan had really found a formula to target women online um, and a woman that I, I really really cared about and was a huge fan of her work uh she was criticizing um a giant bomb which is a conglomerate uh, a part of cbs for basically they went to hire someone and holy smokes yet again the same way as ever at their time in their history, they looked at all the candidates, it just happened to be another white dude, right? Yeah, yes. What a coincidence. Um, and she criticized them to the point that she uh, was then harassed by 4chan and uh, pro-giant bomb people to the point that she has quit her career. And left the industry.
1: And tell us, I mean, I've talked a little bit on this show about being kicked in the face on TV by Tucker Carlson. I've gotten the RT crowd, the Chapo crowd, the, the, the Tucker Carlson crowd, but I have never gotten 4chan and 8chan oh, to my wow. knowledge. Um, so tell me about the differences in that experience between what, I, what I've experienced and what I think people maybe are more familiar with.
2: You know, I would actually suppose it's the same, to be honest with you, ah, because okay. a lot of Natsec people, believe it or not, looked at uh, Gamergate and then looked at uh, the Russian playbook to kind of divide Americans. And there are many Natsec professionals that believe that they looked at the work that Gamergate and 8chan and 4chan did as a tool to kind of exacerbate uh, existing divisions here in America. So I would, I would imagine it's practically the same thing. It's pretty Uh,
1: similar. Yeah. There's also communication between 4chan and H-Kuhn or whatever it's called now. And parenthetically, for listeners not familiar with these, you know, kind of scroungier, darker, grosser precincts of the internet, um, this is the kind of thing that, you know, QAnon spins out of um, that are, you know, doing Holocaust denial and, you know, revolting, you know, whatever child porn, it just all kinds of illegal materials and edge lord kind of stuff, you know, very very disturbing.
2: Yeah. On HM, when we were researching it, we saw dark web credit cards. We saw uh, professional uh, DDoS tools to take websites offline. We saw a plot to murder a federal judge start being uh, put together that we passed to the FBI. Um, you know, along with just your your regular disgusting crimes like uh, child pornography. I mean, it is it's a truly terrible bunch of people to be targeted by so to kind of bring it back to Gamergate uh, they went after my friend I spoke out against it and eventually I found myself targeted by these same people To the point that uh, eventually there was a Law and Order episode about everything they did to me and Anita Sarkeesian and Zoe Quinn all kind of merged together in one character. Uh, It was death threats, rape threats, uh, threats to murder my dog, claims that they had murdered my dog when my dog suddenly died, um, hacking my bank account, trying to destroy my game studio's reputation. It was full-spectrum warfare, and um, it was scary.
1: I mean, there are gradations here, so I've been doxxed, but then, like, you know, they go to the level of having to move, of having to get the FBI involved with credible death threats. That's, you know, it. it there's a whole spectrum. I'm only doing this not to just, like, deepen our wounds again or even complain, but more to— evoke for listeners what this is like it's not it's not like oh I've seen that wow people were really giving that person a hard time on Twitter today it's all this stuff you don't see and it's all this stuff that ends up involving law enforcement and the courts and taking so much of your time away from your work and
2: family I I think that's dead on and just to kind of bring it back to that point you just made it may seem routine today And that's exactly what I was trying to stop with Gamergate. I told Congresswoman Catherine Clark, working with the FBI, because both of us saw that if law enforcement didn't step in and prosecute what was happening during Gamergate, I told this to them repeatedly. I said, if you don't prosecute these people, this is going to go mainstream, it's going to set a precedent, and this is going to become the way that we argue online. And guess and what? And that's exactly what happened. Worth noting that the FBI is overwhelmingly run by white men again just pointing out the the the, the perspective that, that that institution has and you know I personally don't feel that having to get numb and hardened to people threatening to rape and murder you while just trying to have a career, I don't think that should be the price of being a woman. I fundamentally reject that this is the way it has to be. And I think that uh, it was essentially a policy decision.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. I'm just, as we get into the conversation about free speech, I want listeners to understand what that speech is and how much it tilts into a kind of speech that really should not be protected and isn't protected like death threats.
2: Yeah. Do you know what Anita Sarkeesian, Zoe Quinn, and I all had in common during Gamergate? No. None of us had children. And that's not a coincidence because a lot of the women in the game industry that saw what was going on and had children did not feel free to speak up because they knew those children would be targeted. And, you know, it's so ironic to me as we're talking about free speech online. Mm -hmm. I don't think if you're a parent deciding to keep your mouth shut, because your child is going to be brought into an internet argument and you're going to lay awake at night wondering if they're in danger. I don't think that parent has free speech.
1: Yeah, and that's right.
2: I, I think that we are completely framing this the wrong way. Yeah. And I, I just, I think there's a whole perspective that people that don't face these forces do not understand.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. All right. Moving on to Elon Musk, because what you just described is that sometimes a policy is created under the guise of free speech. But then, paradoxically, it has a chilling effect on speech. So speech becomes more monotonous and sterile. You know, it turns to that pro-scientific racism or the so-called things that can't be said by people who fear cancel culture. And then all of a sudden, everyone's just saying the same things they've always said. They're just right wing things. We're not talking about right eliminating heterogeneous voices or even questioning Elon Musk's motives for what he might do with Twitter. But I think we're really talking about some policies that might have a chilling effect on speech. So, Brianna, tell me what happened when you first learned that Musk was zeroing in on Twitter.
2: Well, I was I was really terrified, to be honest with you. Um, in the aftermath of GamerGate. Unsurprisingly, Twitter came to me and was interested in improving their policies on all of this. You know, yeah. uh, the fact was a lot of these rape threats and death threats were being automated by bots, and they wanted to find out how to uh, better um, to better stop these, frankly, TOS violations. And
1: mm-hmm. that's terms of service. And by the for listeners, yeah, it, which becomes significant. Go ahead,
2: a hundred percent. So you know we worked very 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 hard on thinking about these policies in a really deep way you know something i cannot stress to you enough is how non political this is A story that's not been told about Gamergate is how many people um, like, like Christian women that reached out to me personally during Gamergate being like, look, I feel like I can't go online and talk about my faith without being really made fun of and targeted by people. And the way I feel is, look... No matter who you are or what you believe in, I don't think you should be getting death and rape threats, right? right. I don't That's think you right. should be on the right, left, middle, whatever. I, 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 So we were talking about universal policies applied to everyone. To make sure everyone could get a say and participate in the conversation online. Mm-hmm. So when I hear Elon Musk getting in there, and you can read his tweets for yourself, uh, you know it's very clear he feels censored and put out by these pesky, you know, leftists that want rules against doxing and hate speech and rape threats and things like that. So uh, to be really honest, I'm terrified that he is going to roll back a lot of these policies that we worked very hard to put into place.
1: We are going to take a short break. When we get back, what Twitter did in the aftermath of Gamergate and how that changed in 2016, when a certain former president started wielding his tweets for
0: ill. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com pod five zero for 50% off.
3: The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories, but your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley High Performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.
1: We're back with my guest, game designer and activist Brianna Wu. So I want to get back to what you all did at Twitter um, with the terms of service. So, like, what are what does some amount of reform look like at Twitter? before we get into what's next.
2: Well, one of the policies that I'm proudest of is making a Twitter a safer place for transgender people, right? Yeah. And I realize transgender issues are are kind of hot button for a lot of people, but I look at it like this is a group that has dealt with more than their fair uh, fair share of harassment, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that in a very basic level, all of us deserve to have education and health care, right? And that's often not the case for transgender people. So um, what we had was a set of really malicious practices to out-transgender people, to harass them, to threaten them, to dehumanize them. And I worked very hard with Twitter and Backchannel to update these policies, to have Kind of hate speech against transgender people be the same as it might be hate speech against a racial group or a, mm-hmm. you know a, a religious minority um, you know those policies are very much under attack uh, Elon Musk is someone that certainly tweets things very frequently that I consider transphobic and I think a lot of people would consider transphobic so I think this one policy is going to be one of the very first things on the the chopping block and something I can't stress to you enough is the years it took to get that small change in the policy updated it wasn't just you know contacting twitter and saying hey wouldn't this be nice it mm. was collating large data sets to present to them, like, this is what this looks like. Um, you know, here is an academic expert that can talk about the psychological effects of this, right? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you're talking about a UX problem, a user experience problem, because it makes it not fun for a certain group to use the product.
1: So who'd you work with at Twitter to change these policies? And and what was that like?
2: I worked with the trust and safety team while Jack Dorsey was CEO. Got it. Um, Something that was really striking to me was after Trump was elected, um, my relationship with the trust and safety team became much more distant. Mm. And my theory with this is not that we did anything to upset each other, it was that that was the point they became, before that was normal people versus the trolls. Mm-hmm. And then after that, it became another stupid left versus right screaming yes. at each other issue. Yes. yes, And that was when, because they politicized it, it just got very hot and there was less room for the trust and safety team to maneuver.
1: Yeah, that was a very... um weird transition um, or sort of transformation in how we talked about problems. It had seemed like it was, well, suddenly what we had thought of as crime was partisanship. (laughs) You know, it used to be we were all against the fire. Now you had to choose sides between the (laughs) fire brigade and the fire. So there were some people who seemed team fire um, after the Trump election, which sucked.
2: I, I think that's exactly right. And you know, maybe this is naive of me, but I really genuinely think the majority of Republicans, at least I met, don't think sending women death threats and rape threats is a mm. good thing, right? Yeah. yeah. I don't believe that this is a partisan issue. I think it's this lunatic fringe on one side of the party that just really gets a rise out of being cruel to people online. So... Yeah. I, I really reject that this is a left versus right issue. Yeah,
1: yeah. agree. I think also it is, it, yeah, just astonishing that the, uh, the former, you know, Christian right, the family values types are on the side of 8chan, like, well, yeah. wonders never cease. <laughs> um, all right. So we talked up to 2016 um, right. and the election of Donald Trump. But how did the trust and safety mission play out before Trump was banned from Twitter?
2: Well, I think of it in eras, right? So yeah. I think there's the trust and safety team era from about 2014 to about 2018, right? This is in the aftermath of Gamergate. Harassment against women is really, really hot in the news. And mm. they're making huge strides on this. Um, you know, Just like if you took your iPhone and you used uh, the iOS from 2014, you'd be shocked at how primitive it is. Mm. In the same way, I think people really take for granted All the advancements that we've made as far as stopping disinformation bots and harassment and the the amount uh, of death threats that are caught by NLP, uh, you know, uh, basically semantic analysis of words um, on Twitter's back end. What I think happened after that is because Donald Trump started spending so much time pushing the rules of the platform to the absolute limit, the conversation stopped being like, how can we make this a safer product for women and people of color? And it became like, okay, can Trump say the election results were rigged, right? Mm-hmm, it became mm-hmm. can the president threaten violence on Twitter? You know, it became uh, you know Russian propaganda. Uh, you know, like uh, can they get on on these platforms and spread disinformation? My point is, those policies that we worked so hard to implement at Twitter in 2014 to about 2018, they're hanging on by a thread, and this is another really critical point. You know, trolls are like cyber attackers, right? That they are sitting there constantly pushing the system, trying to find vulnerabilities. You know, it's a huge attack surface, to put in cybersecurity lingo, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they're trying to find ways to push the rules that will let them kind of harass you. And when Twitter doesn't have an active mission of stopping that harassment, it gets worse and worse and worse, which is why, from my perspective, Twitter is less effective at stopping rape threats and death threats today than they were two years ago. Mm. They're worse at stopping automated uh, bots online than they were two years ago. And I think the the organized uh, harassment of women is much worse today than it was three years ago. And I expect those trends to get much worse.
1: Yeah, so. Back to Elon Musk. His tweets and his pronouncements are kind of something of a mixed bag, right? Because they're largely unintelligible. I don't mean that he's ambiguous, but more like there's so much oscillation. Sometimes he's trying to spike the price of Dogecoin or sound like a Delphic oracle. Um, At times he said he's a socialist, but he has these terrible labor practices. He said he's a liberal, but he doesn't like woke progressives or whatever. I mean, it's hard to know. It doesn't seem like he has an ideological manifesto. You know what I mean? He's not Rupert Murdoch. And in some ways that might be worse or maybe it's better. Tell me about what you think of the contradictory nature of Musk's public pronouncements.
2: Well, he seems very similar to Trump in the sense that he seems to really want to get an emotional rise out of people and seems to get something from all that negative attention. Uh, He also seems to have a a great deal of a sense of victimhood. Um, Also, just really, to be honest, I think there's a very gendered reaction to Elon Musk. I think for a lot of... At least a lot of the white guys that I know, I think they look at him as kind of a a Tony Stark empowerment fantasy, right? What if I were a billionaire and all these crazy fun ideas I have, like tunnels under Las Vegas, I could go out there and fund them immediately. That's what I want. I just want to speak my mind and not have anyone uh, criticize me about it. I think it's an empowerment fantasy for them. I can only speak for myself. But Elon Musk reminds me a lot of the brilliant jerks (laughs) that I've met in the game industry that think they're really, really smart but are kind of toxic to be around and take credit um, uh, for everyone else's work. So when I see Elon Musk, I see someone that's leading without empathy, and that's Mm. a real danger sign for me personally.
1: So you mentioned there are a couple of things people are watching with Musk in advance that we also, because we know he is, as you say, he's trolling a lot. He's like just the ultimate edgelord, like, you know, a a video game character himself um, in the, like the making of him and self into an icon. So those are some of the things we know about him. We know some things about his pronouncements and then we know about his damn it commitment to, you know, electric cars. Um, Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the first ever really super muscular galaxy brain um, way to address putting the oil companies out of business. I know that wasn't his total intent, but he did get some some love from people who like hyper-masculine approaches to problems um, in the green sphere, and that was new. Is it worth talking about, whether we admire that or
2: not? I mean, I certainly admire it. I also think there's a downside to this approach to solving climate change that we haven't really talked about, um, yeah. you know, what I find frustrating is a lot of the, the Tesla fans, um, it's not that an electric car is a bad idea. It's that it's such a limited perspective on what we need to do to address uh, climate change, right? Yeah. You know, uh, something not factored in is electric cars are much more damaging to roads because they're much heavier right? Hmm. You're also only as green as the um, the electricity is generated to get into your car. So we spend a lot of money on uh, generating electricity by coal. So um, I think what we've done is we've turned this into a consumerist problem where the answer to this is to go, everyone buys a $70,000 Tesla, which is just not feasible when we need this host of 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 policy solutions like, you know, solar panels and more public transportation. You know, there's a a whole range of things we need to be doing. And instead, we've kind of got this uh, very myopic view, in my opinion.
1: After the break, what's the outlook for Musk at the helm of Twitter? Do we, can we all leave Twitter en masse?
0: Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com pod 50 for 50% off.
3: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best.
1: Welcome back to This is Critical. My guest today, Brianna Wu, has been helping us get to the bottom of what Twitter used to prioritize in terms of trust and safety, and what the future of an Elon Musk-owned Twitter might look like. All right. Let's talk about worst case scenarios with Musk. And I'm going to force you to come up with a best case scenario. Sure. So Musk buys this thing outright. And then uh, he's in charge and he's the techno king or whatever he calls himself at Tesla of this whole thing. What is your absolute dystopic vision.
2: Okay, so we'll start with dystopic and then we'll go to the best case. Uh, Yes. we'll cheer people up at the end. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The dystopia is, you know, basically Twitter becomes exactly like Truth Social or Gab or Parler. Um, I don't know if you've spent time there professionally. I have just to kind of survey it. Yeah. Um, They're not happy places. It is is truly, it's exactly like 8chan. Right. Anyone says anything. Harassment, sexist stuff, death threats, rape threats, personal destruction. It's just an absolute free for all. It's a miserable place to spend time, which is why I don't think those platforms have been successful. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think if it becomes that way, it's going to have a very very toxic effect on our news and uh, our ability to connect with each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to say a best-case scenario, yeah, you know, I'm an engineer, so I know a lot of people that work for Musk, and they all tell me similar stories that he's kind of the guy that wanders in. You've seen this in your professional life with like a big idea and tells you to get it done and then walks away and never thinks of it again. Yeah. So one of the ways they kind of mitigate that is we're going yes, sir, we'll make that happen and just (laughs) waiting for it to never get brought up again. I think that that could happen at Twitter to some degree. But even in that best-case scenario, him being at the top is going to have a terrible effect because it signals to other people that all this harassment and all this trollish behavior is okay. So even the best-case scenario is going to leave these platforms much worse for all the rest of us.
1: Yeah. And I want to go to Twitter itself because you and I both use it. I don't use it a lot. I use it all the time. I'm not afraid to say it. And Twitter, somehow it seems like even people who use it and use it well and love it and should admit they love it will tell you it's a sewer hellscape. I don't know what Twitter they're seeing. I do block liberally anyone who trolls me. But you would think that it was like nonstop people saying hateful things and it's more, in my experience, nonstop you and I having a conversation about something interesting or, you know, people you would never get to talk to or just someone that you don't, you don't even know. I mean, I get that not everyone wants to have conversations about ideas all day long, but if you do, it's a really pretty thriving place and it's the only social network I use. It's not sterile. You know, and I'll know. I feel like I'll know when it gets to the Facebook slash Gab
2: realm. I think that's exactly right. I think I I think Twitter, in a lot of ways, has made me a better person. Right? It certainly yeah. widened my perspective on what say, people of color or, you know, any number of groups I- experience on a daily basis. You have know, people with autism, right? This just yes. something I never thought about a decade ago, right? Yeah. Uh, people with disabilities. I think Twitter can connect you to those kinds of people. But like you, I, I block extremely liberally. Yeah, exactly. Right? Um, you know, I also, just to get back to the best-case scenario... To me, it seems like there's a really big opening for someone to go create a Twitter clone that puts trust and safety as the primary feature, right? Yep. I would certainly leave Twitter and go to a social network. that I'm not talking right versus left, I'm talking just, you don't get death threats and rape threats on it, right? Yeah. A product that was designed for those kinds of conversations that both you and I value, Yeah, I think there's a huge space for that. And, you know, there's a lot more venture capital right now than there is like people with the experience to build a product like that. So I would hope that the trust and safety team would consider going and taking the experience and building something new and better. I would certainly make the switch.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think partly what might drive me to leave is not just if there was too much trolling, uh, but if Twitter lost its reason for being entirely. I don't know if you saw this really great piece in the LA Times by Erica Smith, but it was about Black Twitter. And what she said is, it's not just about Black people using Twitter, but it's about Black Twitter, like hashtag Black Twitter, which for a long time has been this community of millions. This, again, is Erica Smith saying, but that community figured out how to turn this social media platform into an indispensable tool for real-world activism, political power, change, and solidarity. So what we're talking about is not, like, is Twitter a hellscape currently or will it become a worse hellscape with more Nazis, right? It's, like... There's so much that's interesting about Twitter. And if that part goes away, I can handle more trolls. But if the good part of Twitter goes away and Erica Smith thinks it will, then I really do need to leave. I mean, I've decided to hold on until that thing happens. Uh, But tell me where you're going to go, what you think lots of people are going to do, and maybe what you think a person should do with Twitter.
2: Well, I'm not going to tell anyone what to do. Uh, Like, it's... When I think about my professional career, like I met you on Twitter, obviously. I met my boss on Twitter, right? Like there's, it's such an indispensable professional tool. I can't just cancel that. Right. Like that's like uh, canceling my own career. So I think it's kind of similar to Facebook, where at a certain point with Facebook, I came to the conclusion that Zuckerberg was really building something that was contrary to my values. So yeah. I didn't close my account. I just only post about three or four things to Facebook a month. Right. Yeah. Um. So I think with Twitter, if it does become much more toxic, You know, um, I can tell you, like, one of the first things I did when I heard this news is I uh, spent uh, $3,000 on that camera I'd really been wanting for a long time. And I'm going to do more social media photography and TikTok, right? Yeah. I'm going to stretch some new creative muscles and see if somewhere else can feel like home. So, um, you know, I think there's this middle path, which is simply tweet a lot less and spend more time somewhere else that people aren't talking about. Yeah,
1: I think that's that's absolutely right. I mean, in the very beginning when journalists were getting on to social media, some of them felt it was obligatory. And if Ooh. any of this stuff feels obligatory, wow, don't do it. You huh. know, the, the moment I got off Facebook, I felt in such enormous relief and out of shackles. I didn't miss it for a minute. I think you're right that, you know, there's no obligation to either stay or go um, on Twitter if it's still serving you. Um, it's still more good than bad, you know, you might stick around. And I hope you'll stick around because that's like where we interact. 100%.
2: You know what I've always thought really needs to be a social media network is... I, I don't know if you've ever read like technical books on the communication differences between men and women, no. but vastly oversimplifying it, men tend to go for a, a domination strategy in yeah. in conversation. In women, you get a group of women together, like across cultures, doesn't matter. There tends to be more natural turn taking, and even when you don't agree, you all agree that you don't agree, right? It's yeah. much more consensus building. All these social media networks have one thing in common, they were designed by dudes. And I've long thought that maybe if you had a lot of women on that engineering team, thinking about the fundamental paradigms of the service, maybe you could build something a little bit healthier. Because uh, I can say, generally speaking, my conversations with other women—it's just—I think we're having the better party. To be honest
1: with you, <laughs> I do too. I would, in a hot second, join any social media site you care to make. If you made me a playable character, I would—I would come in. I would like, you know, I would do the copying and the stapling and the making coffee um, until. I could like you know, win a place to really <laughs> talk with everyone. Um, thank you so much for for joining me in, uh, in this wide-ranging conversation. I've loved
2: it. Well, it's a it's a professional pleasure and uh, we'll see how long we can stick it out.
1: That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on this show, follow us on Twitter. Yep, we're there for now at page 88 and at this critical pod. If you have a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at this is at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Michelle O'Brien and Ayla Fader are the producers. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Marderana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and stay critical.
2: Stitcher.